This podcast is sponsored by FAT, F-A-T-T, a range of keto on-the-go snacks, including cookies, brownies, chocolate bites, bars, fat jacks, and muffins. Fat snacks are delicious, natural, and always free from sweeteners, fillers, and seed oils. Find fat snacks at www.livefat.com. That's L-I-V-E-F-A-T-T dot com. Use the code FABULOUSLY10, that's one zero, to give an extra 10% off one-time purchases. Not valid on subscribe and save. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 177 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And as I record this, um, you may recall a few weeks ago I wasn't well and I'm still not 100% better and I'm not sure what's going on. And it made me think of last week's podcast with Moira Newis about people who get a virus and then um, lose all their energy. And that's sort of what I feel like at the moment. So I'm still working on on getting myself better. Um, we are, as, as I record this, which is the Monday before the podcast comes out, we are on day three of our carnivore challenge. And so that has been really interesting for some of us to see how we're getting on, to deal with struggles and cravings that we're going through as we've eliminated different things for each person it's different what sort of level of carnivore they want to do so that's been really interesting anyway today I'm interviewing Nairi Misisian and Nairi was introduced to me and she and she reminded me that I should say by Dr Joanne McManamy so I always say Joanne because she's become a very good friend and I don't think of of her as Dr McManamy I think of her as Joanne. But anyway, Joanne introduced us when we were at the PHC conference last May. And it's taken Nairi and I a lot of time to get together and to be able to record. So let me tell you a little bit about Nairi. She says, I am an independent nutrition researcher. I've been involved in nutrition research since 2015 and currently working on a book emphasising the importance of correct nutrition for optimal health. I work independently and have no associations in the food industry, pharmaceutical industry or any politically powered nutrition organisations. I receive no funds from any of these mentioned bodies, which gives me the freedom to objectively look at studies and share them 
with you without any biases, obligations or external pressures. I share the scientific information I study with the followers in my members only exclusive Facebook groups. The groups promote a, the low carbohydrate, low insulin lifestyle as supported by scientific evidence. This is the only lifestyle as shown in medical science that prevents or reverses insulin resistance, thus dramatically reducing one's chances of developing metabolic illnesses such as type 2 diabetes, obesity, hypertension, heart disease, Alzheimer's, unbalanced lipids, fatty liver disease, kidney dysfunction and even some types of cancer. The low carbon fasting group members have free access to summarised information posts, recipes, tips and weekly live videos. Members also receive support from me as well as others who are in this, on the same journey. I love my research work and love sharing the information I uncover with others because I believe that knowledge is wonderfully infectious and expands when shared. For members who need further support, I offer coaching services on a one-to-one -one basis to help them improve their health with good nutrition. My professional background lies in linguistics, literature, education and translation. I am the founder and director of a translation company. I have 30 years of experience in the education field and have held teaching positions in many of Britain's outstanding private schools. I am also an avid gardener and grow my own food in the summer months. I love creating healthy recipes that promote nutrient dense foods to achieve optimal health. I have been a type one diabetic for 42 years. I am in great health thanks to the dietary and workout protocol that I follow. To find out more, join my Facebook group for type one diabetics who follow the low carb and fasting lifestyle. Let's go and hear from Nayiri. Welcome Nayiri to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me, Jackie. You're very welcome. So Nayiri, where in the world are you? <laughs> Jackie, I'm uh, from the UK. Um, however, currently I'm recording this from Toronto, Canada. Um, and because, uh, um, well, we do a lot of traveling. So in the last couple of years, we've been doing a lot of traveling, well, my family and I, uh, mainly for business. But uh, but I'm looking forward to being back in the UK in a few months' time. Yeah, a few months' time. You've got to go through the winter in Canada. Hmm. <laughs> Not sure no, what places with you. It's going to be my first winter, so we'll see. When I was in Toronto in 2019, um, I've got cousins that live out there. It was the first time I'd seen them for 30 years. And one of them's got a boat and we went out on the boat. And we came back. We were swimming in, in the lake, in Lake Ontario. It is Lake Ontario, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um. Mm -hmm. And we were swimming in the lake, which is the first time I've ever been in cold water, I think. But it was great. Well, it's very brave of you. It's a very brave of you. I, I actually spent the summer by the lake. Uh, it was uh, June, July 20, 2019. Interestingly enough, 2019 summer I spent by the lake. Uh, and I was doing a lot of swimming in the lake, but uh, but not the winter. Not no, the it, wasn't, winter. it wasn't the winter. It was the it was August, so yeah. 
Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yes, it was cold. I remember even in June, July, the lake water was cold, but, uh, but it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. I, I have been assured by Joanne that you're the best guest that I'm going to have. <laughs> That's very kind of her. And we're talking about Joanne, Dr. Rather, Dr. Joanne Mc, uh, McManamy. Uh, both Jackie and I have interviewed her. Uh, please check out our web, our podcast with with uh, Dr. Uh, McManamy. She's wonderfully in- inspirational. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And she's become a great friend of mine. So whenever she's in the UK, we get together. Wonderful. So let's not talk about Joanne today because we're here <laughs> to talk about you. Why don't you start by telling us your story and how you came to low carb? And I think the important thing that um, listeners should know is that you're a type one diabetic. But let's see how you, one, found out about being type one. And then how did you find out about low carb? Right. So I was five years old when I was diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes. And that's not uncommon because most cases of type 1 diabetes used to occur among children or, or, or teenagers. That's why it used to be called juvenile diabetes. It used to be. <laughs> now that's disappeared, that, that sort of label is, is now off the literature because more and more older people like adults are being diagnosed with type 1 as well. Now type 1 diabetes for people who don't know is that type 1 diabetes is not a lifestyle related disease. It's an autoimmune disease. If you like, it's similar to Parkinson's, similar to multiple sclerosis, where your own immune system attacks uh, well, in the case of type 1 diabetes, the immune system attacks the pancreatic cells in the pancreas, obviously, that produce insulin. And so once that happens, then your pancreas can no longer produce insulin. So you will become a type 1 diabetic. In other words, you will become insulin-dependent type 1 diabetic. All type 1 diabetics need insulin. Um so I was diagnosed at age five. Um, I was diagnosed when uh, my family lived in the Middle East at the time. And um, I remember being in the hospital. And um, I think I'm, I probably spent a couple of days there. And then when we came home, my mom showed me a sheet uh, of different foods that I could eat and foods that I couldn't eat. She was given that um as as a as a sort of a guide by by the doctor by the diabetologist right and and that sheet was recommending a low carbohydrate diet mm. it wasn't called a low carbohydrate diet so people who say nowadays oh this is fad this is all a fad diet this is all new this isn't legit you know you hear all sorts of allegations against the low carbohydrate way of eating but that's exactly what my mom was given in 1978, when I was five years old and living in Beirut at the time. So um, so on that list, Jackie, you'd be surprised. So there were all the meats and um, meat and eggs and dairy and low carbohydrate vegetables like salad, greens and cucumbers and that sort of thing. 
on the good list. Yeah. And then on the no-no list, there was sugar and desserts and cakes. And that's why I only ever had cakes when it was my birthday, once a year. Mm. And you'll be surprised. I actually remember every single birthday cake. My birthday cake aged age six, then age seven. I remember the strawberries on my birthday cake when I was six years. I remember because they were indeed a treat. Because yeah. it was on the no-no list and my mom wouldn't bring it home. No one at home ate cakes and desserts either. So everyone must have been doing low carbohydrate diet with me, along with me to support me, right? And and on the limited list, like limit these or just eat them in very small quantities was, of course, bread and pasta and rice and that sort of thing, spaghettis and all, yeah, all of those. Um, and, and even fruit was there, just limited quantities. So this was your low carbohydrate diet. And I grew up on that. Yeah. Then I came to the UK as a young, um, I, I was in my 20s, early 20s. I came to the UK to study and um, uh, sort of as an independent and uh, sort of adult, I went to the uh, local um, diabetes clinic to register because that's what the GP told me. You have to, you know, you have, they, they referred me to the, to the hospital because type 1 diabetics are taken care of. Um, by a diabetes team based at the hospital, usually. It's not your GP who looks after you. Um, so, so my first uh, visit to my, uh, my diabetes clinic, I was told, oh, no, you're, uh, you don't have to follow a special diet. Like, just eat whatever you want. Type 1 diabetics do not have to limit anything. You do not need to eat differently. Just eat like everyone else and just take the right amount of insulin to cover your food or your carbohydrates. Although they did mention carbohydrates specifically. And I remember Sorry, I was shocked. So they did or they didn't mention carbohydrates? <laughs> they didn't. They didn't mention carbohydrates. They just said, you know, just eat whatever you want. They weren't necessarily recommending junk food, but the implication was there, right? That you just eat like everyone else, as if everyone else was eating healthy, right? Everyone else is eating junk food. Just, no, don't feel, you know, left out. So in fact, what shocked me, and I remember, I mean, what, the big shock for me was, um, was the large poster at the clinic on the wall, just behind the doctor's uh, desk <laughs> on the wall, the large poster. And it was like, it was, um, uh, uh, a wheat field and you had flour and this large wheat field which actually there was something relaxing about it mm -hmm. and it was shot at a wide angle and it was like oh this sort of yellow sort of tint and it was just so relaxing and it kind of leaves the impression on you that's healthy food you should be eating you should mm -hmm. be eating flour you should be eating pastries you should so I have no idea why that poster was there <laughs> or who was behind it obviously who was trying to promote whatever their industry probably but that poster was there and it's still in my head I didn't read the writings on the site because I did I was young and I had no idea of how to be critical at the time so so in my 20s then I started introducing uh, carbohydrates and in fact uh, unlimited amounts of carbohydrates and around that time I'd also decided to become vegetarian because hey it was trendy it was not it was cool to be vegetarian really? so 
Correct, correct. And uh, so this is this was pre-internet, I would say. So we didn't have social media platforms. We didn't have the right information. And it was the beginnings of the internet, right? So I, I had no idea what I was doing to my health, right? So I decided to become a vegetarian. And, um, and of course, now I wasn't eating the meat or the fish or the eggs. So what did I eat more of? Fruits? I ate loads and loads of potatoes and we love potatoes and they're cheap as cheap can be in the UK. Cheap as chips. So so, uh, I stopped myself. I just ate bread. And then, but over time, my blood sugar started rising. My A1C at one point was 12.8% and it had never, never before been that high. Mm. Um, and uh, so my diabetes sort of clinic were concerned about my A1C. But oddly enough, there was no talk about what I was eating. Their only recommendation was that I take more insulin or they changed my insulin. And, you know, the approach was that, hey, you're not managing your insulin intake properly. Um uh, it didn't help. They changed my insulin from one brand to another. Um, it didn't help. I, I was still eating carbohydrates because now I decided not to eat <laughs> to eat uh, meat, right? And so you have to stop yourself with something, right? So you have to eat. What are you left with? If you're not eating your animal-based proteins, what are you going to eat? You're going to eat carbohydrates. carbohydrates. And they scared us of fat too, Um so you wouldn't want to eat too much butter or uh, or fat either. So you're only left with carbohydrates. The worst thing you could be eating if you are diabetic, uh, type 1 or type 2. Uh, so um, uh, eventually they said, hey, there's no, I mean, you can't, we're, we're not, we're unable to help you control, <laughs> control your uh, blood sugar. So let's put you on a list where... Um, uh, you know, we can um, give you a pump, insulin pump, and it will change your life. They said it will change your life. And I, was, I looked forward to the date that would give me my new pump. They gave me my new pump, and it did indeed change my life because it gave me the freedom of not having to inject myself um, mm. up to eight times a day. Um, so in that respect, it changed my life. Did my blood sugars come down? <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. No, the pump isn't the pump isn't the robot that's gonna you know uh, suddenly magically make you healthy. It's just another device by which you are delivering exactly the same insulin that you would have taken through syringes or insulin pens. So it's exactly the same thing you're doing. It's just that instead of injecting it with a pen or a syringe, now you're pumping it through this device that's attached to your body. So unless you change your diet, um, your blood sugars will not come down. I mean, that was a lesson I, I, I learned through uh, trial and error. So I start, uh, so, um, I mean, I knew my, I knew my health wasn't, wasn't that good. So I decided to uh, grow everything at home, like all the vegetables, right? Yeah. And that's a tough thing to do in the UK, right? Because our weather is erratic and you don't know how much sunshine you're going to have. 
Um, the, the soil in my backyard was horribly poor. So I would carry like bag after bag of topsoil and, um, and manure and whatever. And I just had a tiny, in fact, I had a tiny backyard, but I, I grew my own vegetables like organic. I thought that would make a difference to my blood sugars. But of course, mm -mm, doesn't make a difference whether you're buying your <laughs> a kale from the supermarket or eating. Oh, obviously, you know, overall it's healthier because you've grown it organically. Um, and at least, you know, it doesn't have the pesticides or Roundup sprayed over it. But uh, in terms of blood sugar, it makes absolutely no difference. No mm -hmm. difference. My blood sugars were, were not coming down. My A1C, I think the lowest was about 7.8. And it was just stuck there. 7.8% um, is still the sort of high, right? Even above uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, above uh, the diabetes organizations as a recommendation. So, but it wouldn't come down. It was just stuck there. I was trying, I was making every effort. And then I decided, okay, so it must be the supermarket bought bread because I don't know if you remember like five, six, no, maybe even more like about 10 years ago, right? There was a lot of talk and news media covered it that hey, supermarket breads aren't fresh and they have all these additives, etc. So I decided, aha, so that must be it. I have to make my own bread now at home, um, which actually many people still do in in a futile attempt to improve their health. Yeah. They just don't realize that, hey, the flour and its glycemic load, that is the problem. Um, so I used to I used to be full-time teacher at the time. So I used to wake up 4, 4 a.m. every morning. Uh, and uh, so do you have to do the kneading? So it was a process to make bread at home, but I had a brilliant recipe <laughs> that worked that really was an absolutely perfect sort of recipe, but it needed uh, it needed sort of work, right? So I would um, um, so I would sort of prepare it and then let it uh, put, put it to one side for proofing, right? Yeah. <laughs> put it, leave it under a blanket and then an hour later I would get back to it. And then knead it again and then bake it. So that bread would come out before I would, uh, you know, uh, get into, uh, into my car to go to work. It was hard work. It's hard missing out on sleep because you have to make the family bread at home. And it didn't make any difference to my, <laughs> to my health. So after all of that, I was just so frustrated. I knew there was something, but I, I couldn't put two and two together. There was no information online. And um, I was on YouTube. Um, it was 2015. I was on YouTube and I came across one of Jason Fung's videos and he was talking about diabetes. And suddenly it all made sense to me. Suddenly I realized it's the flower that's the problem. Mm. It's the fruits, even the apples from my own garden that are the problem. Um, so um, that I gradually started reducing my carbohydrates um but I was like a you know I was kind of blind because I didn't know what I was doing I knew I was intelligent enough obviously to know that if I'm reducing my carbohydrates as a type 1 diabetic who takes insulin I would have to reduce my insulin intake too but by how much how to do it and there weren't CGMs at the time not in 2015 uh, so I would have to check uh, my glucose 
through finger prick tests, like about 12, even 15 times a day to see what's happening. Uh, so I took it very, very slow. So slowly started first, I think it was the flour and the sugar that went out. Um, so didn't have them at home next to it was, I think, the fruits. So I, I took it very slowly because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, Can I just ask you something? With the with the pumps, did you have to adjust the dose yourself or did it automatically adjust? No, they still don't do it, by the way. I mean, there are some pumps uh, that talk to a CGM, mm-hmm. uh, which measures your uh, glucose levels, and they automatically... Uh, can adjust your uh, sort of insulin. In fact, my current pump does that, uh, but I don't use the automatic mode on it because manually I do a better job. (laughs) The automatic mode just keeps me higher than where I'd like to be. Um, It's just just the safety feature on the device. It doesn't want to take me lower than 6.1. That's the lowest I can set my blood sugar in 6.1. I can... I'm happy to be 6.1 two hours after a meal, but I don't want to be 6.1 all day long. I want to run at five. Five mm-hmm. is a five is a more normal blood sugar level, right? For me. Yeah. So, and we're talking about millimoles per uh per liter here. So um so I don't use the automatic mode. But at the time in 2015, there wasn't uh the pumps weren't that clever. So you had to set it up manually. Um so, but, but but gradually I learned, I became confident. I started checking my blood sugars more often, experimenting uh, with different things. And in 2017, I had my first CGM. It was the Freestyle Libre, the, the first model that yeah. came out, I think, in the UK in 2017. So uh, now that, that truly was a life change, life, life, life changer for me because I could see over 24 hours, I could see clear growth of what was happening to my blood sugars as a result of, well, primarily the foods I was eating, but also as a result of maybe lack of sleep the night before or um, exercise, um, right? So uh, or two hours of gardening. So what was happening to my blood sugars? It was life change, life changer for me. Um, then I became more confident because now I had a CGM. Uh, I could see exactly what was happening. So, so I became stricter and stricter and kept reducing my carbohydrates. And now by this time, I think 2017, there was more information online. So um, in fact, if you go back to Twitter and type um, and search for low carbohydrate, you can see a few posts by people like, I think last time I checked, it was like a few people, leaders in this field, like Dr. Tro was one who was posting about low carbohydrate back in 2017 or 18. So there was Jason Fung, of course, on on, on YouTube primarily. Um, so more information started appearing. So I came on Facebook and I wanted to join uh, uh, low carb groups Um where I could find support, right? So I joined, um, I think one of the groups was, um, in fact, Jason Fung's group. And uh, I joined the group and I said, because uh, we know Dr. Fung that I have great respect for actually, uh, also promotes intermittent fasting. 
intermittent fasting for uh, weight loss or for, uh, you know, insulin sensitivity, right? And uh, I wanted to do fasting because by by then, by t- this must have been 2018, 2019, so pre-COVID, <laughs> uh, pre-lockdowns. Um, so I was so confident. I was doing the right thing. I knew exactly how much insulin to take. My food was really clean. Um, and, uh, uh, so I wanted to, to try fasting. So I joined, uh, Dr. Fung's group and I put a post up and the admins threatened me. They said, oh, that's very dangerous. You shouldn't be posting. We can't let you post about type ones because, uh, type ones doing fasting because that's potentially very dangerous. Um, so I was left so disappointed, um, because I thought that would be a group where I could find someone else who was type one, who's doing fasting, who could tell me, hey, I've done it. Yeah. And yes, it works. You can do it too. Um, I joined a UK-based group, actually, a local UK low-carb low carb group. And uh, the admin was type one too. So when I posted, are there any type ones out there who are doing fasting? Um, again, I, I was threatened to be banned from the group because... I was told, hey, that's very dangerous. So um, I thought, okay, so if it's so dangerous, let me dig into the literature. So I went to PubMed and started looking at, you know, fasting and type one. I couldn't find, Jackie, I could not find any scientific literature to convince me that if I decided to fast and consequently reduce my insulin, um, that what I was doing would be dangerous. Mm. I couldn't find anything to to uh, to deter me from from uh, you know from uh, what I wanted to do. So I thought I'm going to create a group on Facebook. I'm going to start fi- fasting for people who are already doing low carbohydrate or keto diet, specifically for type ones, yeah, and who are also interested in fasting. So I just created a group. I was the only member in there, and I thought I'm just going to post, write a blog about my experience, what I learned. And, you know, if it turns out to be a horrible experience, at least other people will, will learn, might, might learn something from it, right? So I created a group and started posting and posted my blog, fasting blog on there too. Um, and soon enough, I think there are like over 300, 400 mem- members now, 400 other crazy type ones for doing fasting and keto diet, uh, not necessarily keto and as in the classic high fat keto, but just at least low carbohydrate diet. Um, so I'm, I, you know, I found out other people are people are doing it. People are doing it despite the fact that obviously they're not supported by their clinicians. Yeah, um, uh, they're not. They're not. They don't have the support online either but they're doing it because they want to and they trust it's the right thing to do. So yes. I thought, hey, this is, this is, I've done something right. I thought I might be the only one in the group and just keep using the group for my personal sort of, so I could use the group as a reference and go back to it and see what I was doing a year, you know, a year before. But people started joining and everyone is sharing ideas. And I love that group because it's very specific two type ones who want to do fasting. I'm, I'm sick of being told, Jackie, that, oh, you shouldn't be doing that because you're type one. There is nothing that a type one diabetic cannot do um, 
just because they are type 1 diabetics. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> Nayiri, do you think it's do you think it they worry that your ketones might go too high? I mean, do you test for ketones when you're fasting? Yes, I did test for ketones and um you see this is a gray area, Jackie, because um I've interviewed different professionals about safe levels of ketones for type ones, right? And I had figures like anything below 10, you shouldn't worry about. Another professional told me um, up to seven, it's perfectly safe. Um, So I keep receiving different answers that there's nothing in the literature to, uh, you know, to guide us in that respect. So I did a 90 hour fast. And then I did a second fast, which was uh, 100 hours. And the highest I ever came to, or my ketones came to, were, was um, six. I never went went above six. So um, I think... Did you still keep taking insulin even when you're fasting, though? Yeah, that's a very good question. And that, yes, yes, you have to take insulin. And this is... In fact, it's the insulin that keeps you safe during a fast. So the purpose of the fast is not necessarily to have high ketones. Um, a lot of people don't even check their ketones because ketones, we don't understand them fully. Um, uh, Dominic D'Agostino is doing great job. Obviously, he's, he, he has so much research on ketones, but there's still so much more that we need to learn right and so um but the key is during a fast for a type 1 diabetic the key is to have sufficient insulin for your body to function normally because the body will in fact all your organs and all your hormones will stop functioning if you don't have sufficient amounts of insulin on board so insulin isn't just a bad guy oh you know, if you're taking, you know, zero insulin, no, no one can survive on zero insulin. In fact, yeah, people used to die when, uh, you know, when they were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, they they, they wither away, literally. So your body would stop functioning if you don't have sufficient amount of baseline insulin. So when we talk you know, about fasting and reducing insulin levels. We're not talking about reducing them to a level of zero. We're talking about reducing insulin levels to their normal baseline level, whatever that may be for you, right? And so as long as you have that baseline level of insulin um, and um, your blood sugars aren't fluctuating, your blood sugars are also normal, um then it's then you can just fast as many days as you want and, and i'm guessing perfect. i'm guessing that now with the cgm and here in, in the uk all type ones can, are entitled to have a cgm constant glucose monitor with that you can see if it's going low mm-hmm. you can see if you need and you've probably got a, if you're low carb you've probably got a good idea what an a, a low level baseline is for you anyway yes and um in fact if you're going low um (laughs) the advice is that you should take um 
you know, with type 1 diabetics, we have these dextrose uh, tablets to treat us if we have hypoglycemic sort of episodes. So if we go, if our blood sugar drops too low, we can take a tablet or maybe two um, to bring our blood sugars back up to normal level, normal level, right? And so during a fast, and type 1 diabetics who are interested in fasting, they need to know this during the fast, if you are dropping too low, you should take your glucose tablet or or um, liquid form of glucose, which is uh, uh, readily available too. So whatever glucose you have, you should take that, bring your blood sugar back up to normal levels and continue to fast. Yeah. You're not breaking your fast if you eat glucose. All you're doing is bringing your blood sugar back up to normal and you continue your, continue your fast as normal because a lot of type 1 diabetics say, okay, so my blood sugars were too low, so I had a large meal. Well, with a large meal, now you broke your fast. But if you're having glucose to br bring, because with a large meal, now you're going to have to take insulin, extra insulin to cover the meal. <laughs> Whereas if you're just taking one glucose tablet, right, or a small amount of liquid glucose to bring your blood sugar back up to normal level, you don't require extra insulin to cover it. It's not food digestible food, if you like. And so no, you're not breaking. Technically, you're not bre breaking your fast. You're keeping your, your body safe. So, yeah. um, so I do that. I mean, that's one of the most important things. Yes, you need to reduce your insulin when you're fasting, because, you know, a, you're not eating. So you're not, you're not covering your food with insulin. Yeah. You still need to take your background insulin, um, which in pump terms is called basal insulin. You still need to take your basal insulin, but even that background insulin may may need reducing. Be lower, yeah. Yeah, it will be lower than your usual, especially past the first 24, 48 hours. Um, but but after that, it's just an experimentation. You're just, just gonna have to see and trial and error and see how much more or how less insulin you need the next time you do the same fast but always have the glucose with you because if you're low you need to treat your hypoglycemia yeah but that's just common sense really isn't it especially if you're a type 1 diabetic you're you know you're monitoring your sugar all the time you know when it's going too low you've got a you can even have a alarm on your cgm that will beep at you if you, it's going too low. So these are things that are quite, to me, and maybe it's just me, seems quite common sense that you no, should you have, don't. that you would keep an eye on your blood sugar. If it's going too low, have some blood sugar, have some sugar to bring it back up. Um, keep your insulin lower than probably you need it. And like you say, the more you fast, the lower it's probably going to be. And pay attention to how you feel. Do you feel okay? No, it's common sense. It's absolutely common. You're right, Jackie. But I think what people don't realize is that, okay, so now I'm dropping too low. And so maybe I should break the fast. People don't realize that actually treating your low blood sugar with glucose is not breaking your fast. It's basically saving you 
from a diabetic coma. It's yeah. bringing your blood sugar back up to normal level and you don't need extra insulin for it. Um, and that's it. Continue the fast. Yeah. Just keep on fasting. But people get sort of disheartened and discouraged. They go, oh, I dropped too low at hour 19 of my fast. I was going to do a three-day fast at hour 19. <laughs> I dropped too low, so I decided to just eat. And so it's fasting isn't working for me. No, take glucose and continue your fast. So one of the things I noticed when you were telling your story is that you you lived in Beirut. You were following a, what we would term a low-carbohydrate diet, which is probably very normal for out there. You know, if you take away some of the fruits and stuff, it's probably a very normal diet because at that time it would have been real food that you mm -hmm. would have been eating. Um, then you come to the UK and they tell you, eat what you like, um, just take the insulin. But then when it's not working, I noticed they were blaming it on you. You're not managing it well. It's your fault that you can't do it. So that was uh, quite interesting to hear. Jackie, I've uh, mentioned this uh, particular sort of story on in uh, in other sort of interviews as well. Um, I hope I'm not repeating myself, but... Um, I was told by my by by my diabetes nurse when they gave me the pump and they said ah, it's going to change your life it's going to improve your diabetes <laughs> um and it didn't of course not because I wasn't trying hard enough uh because because it was useless trying to manage that massive carbohydrate intake with with insulin it's just a formula that's that doesn't work it's a formula. We know that from Dr. Richard Bernstein's uh, 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 recommendations. Dr. Bernstein is type 1 diabetic himself. Um, he's in his 80s now. He's written uh, the Diabetes Bible, if you like. So anyone with diabetes should read Dr. Bernstein's uh, Diabetes Solution. We know he says that's a formula uh, that that's that's a disaster. That's a formula that doesn't work. And, and when, when I heard that, then I knew that it wasn't my fault. But I was told by my di by diabetes nurse at the time that, oh, neither, because she was frustrated with me. We weren't bringing my blood sugars. We weren't able to bring my blood sugars down. And she told me, you have to be more proactive with your pump. And I've hated the word proactive since. Every time I hear it, I get <laughs> <laughs> get this shudder because it reminds me of that because it's an awful feeling to then sit with your diabetes nurse and the diabetes consultant to 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 uh, uh, to one side and you feel yourself like a useless child who's just not good enough they failed you know um it's awful. I would dread literally my heart would beat so fast walking into the clinic because. I would know I've got nothing good to report to them. Um, I, the, whatever I do is not working. And I didn't realize at the time um, that it was the diet. The diet was making all the difference. And they never, never, ever mentioned the diet. So it was always like how much insulin you should take, how cleverly you should do your injections, or maybe if you're having pizza, you should have 30% of the insulin up front, 
30 minutes before and if 30 minutes before and then 70% of it an hour later or just they were giving me different strategies to try. None of them were work, uh, was working. None of them. No one ever told me, how about you don't eat that pizza? Because if they told me, Jackie, I can assure you, I do love pizzas, but I would be very happy to just give up on the pizza and the pasta. I would have been very happy, I'm telling you, but no one ever, to- ever told no. me. So how difficult was it at that time? Because I mean, I'm sure that when you were in Beirut, it was probably much easier to manage your insulin and dose it and manage your blood sugars. How difficult did it become when you were much higher carb? Was it a challenge? Was it impacting your life? Yeah, it was impacting my life big time, big time, because I would have roller coasters of blood sugars all day long, up and down and up and down. And um, and that's something I don't remember from my childhood. I don't necessarily remember, not that I've never had lows as a child. I have. Oh, uh, I'm going to sidetrack here and tell you something interesting. Um, uh, when I was a little girl, like say seven, eight and I would, I was extremely active. Like if there was anyone in the neighborhood who would be on top of the trees, that would be me. Like I was a very physically active child, right? So I was like using up a lot of glucose and burning glucose, uh, to put it simply, right? So at nighttime, sometimes I would have uh, low blood sugars, which would make me, wake me up, right? So um, I would say something like mom and mom would like jump out of my bed straight away. And guess what? She would bring me at the time. There were no well, uh, liquid glucose tablets and whatever. She would actually bring me a uh, sandwich, bread, And when people eat bread without a thought, actually bread is converts into glucose. The glycemic index of bread is even uh, higher, I believe, than than sugar itself. And so, so, so mom used bread to treat my hypoglycemia, to actually raise my blood sugars. Mm. (laughs) They always brought me a sandwich. And I was normal within 15 minutes. Um, so that's interesting. Now now we eat bread as if it's some, some health food, yeah. <laughs> uh, right? Without a thought. But um, but life was life was tough. Uh, roller coaster blood sugars. And I would like, I remember when blood sugars are low, and I hope you never, ever experience anything like that, Jackie. I wouldn't wish it on anyone, to be honest. It's a, it's, it's a horrible feeling. When your blood sugars are low, especially when you've actually dropped from uh, the, the Himalayan peaks, right? So they'd be right high, high and then you're literally crashing. You start shaking. You start losing your consciousness. You feel like fainting. And what happens is not many people know this, but when your blood sugars are crashing rapidly, your hunger hormone, uh, ghrelin, goes up. And so at that moment, you feel famished. You feel, in fact, you feel ravenous. You feel ravenously hungry. I'd go to the fridge and empty whole jars of like honey and jam because I just couldn't stop. I could not stop myself. And um, that's that's an awful feeling. That's that's sickness right there and then. That's that's horrible. And then I would. Obviously, my blood sugars will start rising again. I start feeling 
a little better. And then I would realize, what did I do? Mm. Um, a whole jar of honey. Now, how much insulin am I going to take to cover that? Because now you're going to take insulin. Otherwise, you're going to be in a diabetic coma again because your blood sugars are not now too high. Um, but you couldn't stop. You could not stop eating. Um, I guess that's the um, body's natural response to say to you, find food quickly. Yeah, it's your survival uh, sort of response. Um, so it's horrible. I mean, I don't, it's... It's wonderful now because I don't have loads like that where I have to run to the fridge or the cupboard and empty whatever we have. I don't have lows. And the reason I don't have lows is because I don't have highs. And the reason I don't have those dangerous highs is that I don't eat pastas and pastries and sugars. And because I don't have the pastas and pastries and sugars, I don't take massive doses of insulin that would inevitably crash me. Mm. So when you found Dr. Funk, what year was that or how long ago was that? Um, I think it was, well, uh, it must have been 2015 um, that I came across one of his uh, lectures. And then gradually I discovered others and then started, I remember my first sort of bo uh, uh, book order on Amazon Um it was like 10 books, <laughs> wanted to read everything. Uh, so I ordered uh, Jason Funk's uh, book at the time, um, a Diabetes Solution by Dr. Bernstein, and a few others, like 10, 10 books to start off, uh, Mastering Diabetes by uh, Dr. Um, Keith Runyon, who's a kidney kidney specialist and he's also type 1 diabetic so um so uh, i started researching and learning and studying um i'm happy that we have more information now out there mm -hmm. i'm happy that people who don't like reading also have access to the audio version of books yeah. um so we're in a much, much better place now than uh, where, we, where we were in 2015 when I first started. And what were some of the benefits you noticed? I mean, obviously, blood sugars going really high, coming really low. But did you notice any other health benefits? Um, so if, if you don't have the highs and the lows, um, you're stable, stable blood sugars. Actually, we know that from uh, from uh, um, medical literature. Stable blood sugars um, are healthier for the brain as well. And so I'm able to focus. Um, I juggle two jobs. I'm busy. I, um, I have more strength physically. Um, so um, I don't have any diabetes related complications my kidneys are i mean i've lived with type 1 diabetes for 45 years now and i was expected to be suffering from kidney disease mm -hmm. by now after 45 years um um neuropathy nephropathy uh heart disease so all of them which are uh, complications of diabetes but but although i don't like calling them complications of diabetes i like calling them complications of high blood sugars yeah 
Um, so um, it's I, I, I could easily be suffering. I could be blind. I could be blind now sitting here recording this with you, but I'm not. I mean, I'm in good health. Um, so I was able to prevent complications from sort of hitting me, I think, in 2015 by making dietary change. Um, so stable blood sugars are overall healthier for every organ in your day. Yeah. So, so tell us what a day of eating looks like for you. Um, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, people who follow me, I have several pages and, and different groups for different purposes on Facebook. Um, people know that I do um, intermittent fasting daily. So, you know, anything, if you're waiting for 16 hours, that's pretty good. Uh, that's a good start. Um, so for the past three years, three, maybe even four years, I've been doing one meal a day. So that's basically, if you're eating one meal and your meal length was half an hour, so you're basically fasting every single day, 23.5 hours. Mm -hmm. That's a a good fast, right? Now, I don't have any excess weight to lose. um, Let me rephrase that because I want to be more specific. I don't have excess fat to lose right? I don't want to talk about because I think it's more correct to talk about fat loss than weight loss. So that's why I rephrase myself. So um, I don't have excess fat, especially the dangerous fat, like the fat around your abdominal area, visceral fat, right? I don't have excess fat to lose. So now I've started eating two meals a day and, and it's it's working fine for me. Um, so two meals Mm, I think the first one is around 11, 11.30. And prior to that, I go um, strength training. Um, I do it in a faster, when I'm fasted. So then I have my first meal and then the second one around 3 or 4, maybe 4 p.m. Sometimes 5, it depends um, on, on, you know, what I'm doing on that day. But what, what does my food look like? I prioritize the protein. The protein is very important. Um, People like to say, oh, especially for women, but I would say especially for anyone above 30. (laughs) And I'm not exaggerating because, you know, after 30, now your protein synthesis starts slowing down. We know that. We've known that for years and years. And we don't talk much about it. We terrify people. Our medical professionals terrify us. Uh, Oh, don't eat protein. Don't eat that. That's dangerous. It's not dangerous. We're not eating enough. We're not eating enough protein. 80% of population, wherever I go, and I I was telling you, we're frequent travelers, right? We spend time in the United States. We spend time in in the UK, here in Canada. People are protein deficient. Despite their weight, they're not eating protein in sufficient amounts of protein. So um, I prioritize the protein. Once the protein fills up, like I would say 80% of my plate, then I would put something else on the side, right? Um, it could be an avocado. It could be a small amount of salad. It could be some roasted cauliflower. Um, because my gut doesn't like vegetables, I love vegetables. <laughs> my digestive system doesn't always like or appreciate vegetables as much as my taste buds do. 
<laughs> yeah. So so that's why every now and again I just eat protein and of course the fats that come with the protein and it could be something like eggs and bacon and um yogurt on the side or greek yogurt on the side and and you know with that kind of meal I'm eating the healthy fats I'm eating uh the protein animal sort of based protein um and my gut is healthy but then I miss vegetables and, you know, we go, we go grocery shopping here, as they say. So, and, and I see all these sort of colorful vegetables and I pick up my kale and I, I actually like the taste of vegetables. I like vegetables. So, uh, but every now and again, I introduce them back and, but I can't overdo the vegetable side. But what I would say is, you know, if, if you are, if you are vegan, right? You can still lower your carbohydrates. Um, and when people say, oh, oh, no, that's hard. Yes, it's harder, mm. but you can still do it. Because, um, you know, but people tell me, hey, it's hard not to eat pastas and bread. It's restrictive because you're cutting out your carbohydrates. How can you eat a diet like that? If you look at the foods I eat, they're like, I'm feasting. We're literally feasting every day. Like my family eats the same way as I do. And we, our foods are like what kings and queens probably would have eaten. We're feasting. This isn't restrictive way of eating. So this is what I would say to anyone who is currently vegan or vegetarian. Look, I was vegetarian for 30 years. I only started eating meat two, three years ago. Wow. It was during the lockdowns. I realized, okay, now I've cut out the carbs. Um, I'm eating eggs. As a vegetarian, I ate eggs, but they're not sufficient. I'm not getting enough protein from the eggs. So uh, as you know, per egg, we get six grams of protein. So to reach 100 and 120, how many eggs am I going to eat a day? <laughs> right? And then- yeah, uh, like 15 my eggs a day. Exactly. Um, and so, so I started uh, sort of eating meat and that was the hardest challenge for me, not cutting out the sugar, not cutting out the carbs, not cutting out the fruit, all of which I did like. That wasn't the challenging part for me personally, after 30 years of not eating meat and fish, that was the most difficult challenge for me, but I did it for my own health. Um, but I do understand. I do understand what it's like to be vegetarian and what it's like to be vegan. And, and if anyone tells you, oh, no, you can't do a lower carbohydrate diet because you're vegan, you must be eating. You can't do keto because you must be eating uh, meat. Tell them, yes, I can do it. <laughs> yeah. Anyone out there, no matter what dietary sort of preferences they have, can lower their carbohydrates anyone. Now, if we're talking about general health, of course, it's unquestionable that eating meat, especially red meat, is going to uh, be beneficial for your health because of the nutrients in red meat, which we cannot find in other foods. Um, and it's not just the B12 that you can get supplements for. It's not just the B12. There are so many other nutrients which are simply not found in other foods. So if we're talking about general health, yes, ideally you should be at least vegetarian or, uh, you know, you should, 
vegan diet is incomplete nutritionally. But if anyone tells you you can't lower your carbohydrates, that's a lie. That's a lie. You can still do that. So if you are vegan currently and you have diabetes, please lower your carbohydrates and eat more of your spinach salad or whatever you eat or more of your tofu, right? Um, Whatever it may be for you, but please, you can lower your carbohydrates. Yeah. And that's for everyone, whether you're type 1 diabetic or not. You know, we should all be lowering our carbohydrates. I agree. So, Nayiri, is there anything particularly around type 1 diabetics? I mean, I'm sure that there's lots of parents out there that have type 1 diabetic children. Is there any advice that you can give them in terms of if the children don't want to be low carb? Is there anything you can, guidance you could give them or resources you could send them to? Jackie, that's an interesting question. And I have to be really diplomatic answering it. Um, So I can't force anyone, type 1 or non-type 1, to adopt a lower carbohydrate or low carbohydrate uh, lifestyle. I can't force it on anyone, right? It has to come from people. So they have to want to do it. Um, And there are a few factors why people, uh, uh, as you mentioned, parents of type 1 diabetic children, for example, why they may not want to to adopt a low-carbohydrate lifestyle. A, because they don't really understand it. Um, they don't know what they can eat, and they have this idea that uh, they're going to be left starving. And of course, there's misinformation, usually by medical professionals, because their doctors tell tell them, "Oh no, your child needs carbohydrates for for growth." And of course, that's total total lie. Children need protein pro- for growth. Um, uh, they need protein. They need the healthy fats. And they need the protein for growth. And there are many, many examples of uh, wonderful type 1s out there. In fact, deadlifting champion is a type 1 diabetic now from Australia. Uh, he was a un- un- under-18 deadlifting ch- ch- champion. So he's he's eating his protein and he's eating his fats. He's not eating carbohydrates. So you don't, children don't need carbohydrates to grow. Um and people think it's going to be difficult. Um, but I would say, look, if it's going to be difficult, I think, you know, you need to look for support. There's a lot of support online. There are a lot of groups that post meal ideas. And if you join those groups, eventually you will come to, to see that it's actually not that difficult and these people are eating well and they're having satiating lunches or dinners and you even get ideas on what you can give your children to take to school for school lunches. Um, so it's not that difficult if you join the right sort of groups of people who can help you, can guide you. And of course, the last factor is why people may be reluctant to adopt a low carbohydrate lifestyle is because they feel like, okay, so if our type one child is doing it, doing it, giving up on um, candy, as Americans would say, right, giving up on the cakes and the biscuits and the and and the and the cookies, then we all have to do it to support our child 
And that's too much to ask. We can't give up on, we can't give up on the orange juice in the mornings and, and the Cokes with lunch, right? And there's there's an element of um, sh- sugar addiction there. Um, we have to just, you know, we have to acknowledge that, I think. Um, and again, the, um, I can't blame parents for whatever their reasons. These factors are usually usually there. So um, what so I would your, give is like, Your family did it, didn't they? I remember I, you telling me that um, back in May, you told me that um, your family did a low-carbohydrate diet. Yeah. I support you. Do you know what, Jackie? No one even talked about it. No one felt themselves deprived. I lived, I lost my father when I was um, two, two years old. So my mother with her two children, so my brother is a few years older, um, she moved in with her parents. And so I lived, when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, um, I was living with my extended family. So there was my mom, my brother, obviously, and no one else was uh, type 1 diabetic. No one else had even type 2 diabetes at that time. So my grandparents, my mom's parents were there. Um, My uncle who was uh, a teenager, my youngest uncle, my mom's brother was there because that was their home, right? He was there. He was, uh, he was, I think, year 10 or something like that. So my youngest uncle. Um, All of these family members, everyone ate the same food. So I can't, they must all have been doing the low carbohydrate diet with me. I can't remember cakes and, and ice creams in my family home. Uh, I don't remember them. In fact, uh, it was uh, probably Christmas or Easter. My mom had uh, Easter. Um, my mom had some uh, sweets, little wrapped sort of individually wrapped sweets in a nice sort of crystal serving bowl. And she had it in the uh, <laughs> dining room cabinet. I remember that. And I discovered it. Um, um, and I started eating from it, like stealing uh, the sweets. And she found the wrappers, of course, in the in the bin. And she said, she didn't say you should be eating them because you have type one. She said, look, I really only bought them because uh, this is the time when we're expecting guests to come over. So when I offer people coffee, a cup of coffee, I usually just offer some something else with the coffee. So it's for guests, she said. Don't eat. Uh, of course, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That didn't make a difference to me. So before she realized, I was like eating the whole thing. And I never saw that again. That crystal ball was empty. Yeah. (laughs) For years and years, it never got filled again. I'd go and secretly check. There was nothing in it. So, (laughs) and they never complained. No one ever complained that they were deprived. Um, Everyone ate the same things. And interestingly, I never felt I was deprived. We were all eating the same way. Yeah. Right, there would be, there would be bread at the table. The bread would be small amount of bread, and by the time my you know grandfather had, had his 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 pig, and my uncle who was growing into a young young adult at the time, and my grandma would have their pig, there would be small amount left. Like for me, like everyone had small amounts because it was limited. Like bread was at the table, but it was in limited quantities. Right, 
Um, so was rice. Rice was at the table. Mom would only give me one, maybe two tablespoons. That was it. Um, so I never felt deprived. Never. Because never. everyone was with doing it with you. They weren't eating sweet things in front of you that you couldn't have. They weren't eating mountains of bread that you couldn't have. You just saw, you just saw everybody doing the same thing as you. That was my norm. Yeah. And in fact, it's so important because I know from the clients that I coach, um, I tell them, look, the key to success, to your success, is your uh, your uh, your family support. Yeah. If your family is not supporting you, uh, there is a high chance you'll fall off the wagon um, and you'll be sort of discouraged. And that's that's almost always the case. Uh, with with the people that I coach, so that's why I do family coaching. Like everyone needs to hear my message because it's mm. not just for you; it's for the it's relevant to the whole family. Absolutely. So, Nayiri, is there anything that we haven't mentioned tonight that you would have liked to mention? I think we covered everything. I really wanted to cover fasting with type one diabetes because you know I get sick of hearing people saying, oh, you shouldn't do that, it's dangerous. Well, yes, I can't deny that it can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Mm. And this is why there are support groups online. Um, as far as I know, mine is the only one that's non-judgmental, and it's specifically for type 1 diabetics um, who want to do intermittent fasting, like 16-hour fast, 18-hour fast, or multi-day fast, um, everyone in the group has some experience with fasting. Um, so join my group. I'm sure Jackie will put the link um, in this in the show notes. So or reach out to me. I'm available uh, online. I look up my name and you can contact me whichever you want. My channels are like contact channels are all open. Um, reach out for help. Uh, because it's much easier if you are supported or surrounded by people who understand you or are in the same boat as you. And don't worry about being judged. Mm. Uh, my group, I can assure you, all 400, 500 members, no one, no one is judgmental. No one will tell you, why are you eating that? Why are you doing it that way? No one. No one will dare because I sift people out. I, I literally only allow genuine and supportive people in, in the group. I don't care about numbers. I, I, I don't care how many hundreds or thousands join the group. They have to be genuine and good people who are there either to support others or to receive support from others yeah. without judgment. Yeah. And um, how... How often do you do extended fasting? Jackie, I did did it twice. So I've done a 90-hour fast and I wrote detailed blogs on it on my website. And then when it went really successfully, I thought um, I'd do a 100-hour fast. 100 is a nicer number than 90. <laughs> and in fact, at that time, Dr. Ian Lake in the UK uh, was doing his uh, running experiment when they did the 0-500 project. So... Um, and again, two diabetics, type 1 diabetics, participated in that project where they had to fast for five days. Um, so, uh, in fact, 100 hours it was. So I was encouraged by that. And I thought, oh, I'll do a 100-hour fast. Um, and 
but I say I did them to prove to the world that this can be done if you are type one and it can be done safely. Okay, As you can so see, I mean, <laughs> anyone who reads my blogs can see that I did it absolutely safely. I monitored everything, everything yeah. from blood sugars to ketone levels to water intake, extra sodium, obviously, uh, to help uh, with the cramps and whatever. So uh, I did it safely and it can be done. I okay. Once I prove my point, I don't have any reason to do it now. Um, look, I'm perimenopausal. So fasting is not the easiest thing that comes naturally um, yeah. with erratic hormones. Um, I might do it again, but over the last few months, I lost a lot of weight. I was doing a lot of running around when I was in California, busy with the, you know, f- f- family matters. So I don't, I'm not considering doing another extended fast at this moment in time but okay. my I didn't know if you did I didn't know if you did it regularly or not obviously not just no I don't have any reason to do it right now but I do daily intermittent fasting obviously and um and that's equally good I think literature is now showing that you know that's equally effective if someone is doing regular intermittent fasts of 20 uh, 22 you know uh, even 19 to 20 hours that's equally effective yeah um um so we'll see um, i might do another one no but i know that i can do it and i can do it safely yeah so how can people contact you tell them about how to find your facebook group we will include all the links in the show notes but um just tell people that are just listening at the moment um Okay, so I think the easiest way is for people to go to my website and it has direct links to all my social media platforms, including the YouTube channel. Um, So my website is lowcarbonfasting, all one word, dot com. So www.lowcarbonfasting.com. Perfect. Thank you. So before we finish, we're going to ask you for your three top tips. Three top tips. Um, okay, so um, number one, um, this is going to be a repeat of what I probably mentioned a number of times during this recording, but it's important to put it across as a tip. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do something because you are tap on diabetic. Yeah. That's tip number one. Don't allow that. So <laughs> my second tip is Follow people who can support you, whether on or online or in real life. And my last tip is remember that ultimately it is you, not your medical team, that's responsible for your own health. Mm. Yeah, be in charge of your health. Yeah, definitely. I think we all have to take responsibility for our health. And we're the biggest players in when you look at our health, we're the biggest player in there. Yeah, we're the most important. And the most important and everyone else. And we're the one that the... cares the most as well. <laughs> true, true. Nayiri, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciated it. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo 
and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.